Hey, welcome to Adventures in Angular, the podcast where we keep you updated on all things Angular related. This show is produced by two companies, Top and Devs and Envoy. Top and Devs is where we create top and devs to get top in pay and recognition while working on interesting problems and making meaningful community contributions. And Unvoid, which provides remote design and software development services on a performance basis. So clients only pay when the tasks are delivered and approved. In today's episode, we will talk about migrating to the new Angular features. That means all the tooling, all the new features, and the caveats of how to migrate your current code base to the latest version. Is it really that hard or is it a smooth transition? My name is Lucas Paganini. I'm the founder of Envoid and your host in the podcast. Joining me in today's episode is Charles Maxwood. Hey, everybody. And Armin Vardanian. Hello, everyone. Nice to be back for another one. Okay, so let's get into it. Armin, again, you are our expert on the subject. Uh, you have been <laughs> researching a lot about the new features on Angular 17. So let's start with the biggest concern that people have. Is it hard to migrate to Angular 17 or is it a smooth transition? Uh, yeah, that's, that's really the most important question. And... Uh, you know, I would be very happy to say that, you know, oh, it's super easy, but I don't like creating... Yay, engines. we're done! Oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, I don't want to create illusions. Of course, it's it's a hard one to crack. And there is a bunch of stuff. Like, it's not one thing that you can, you know, just do overnight. Or, or maybe you just cannot allocate, like, some fixed amount of time and say, okay, I'm going to upgrade and I'm going to have all the latest features and so on. Because it involves a bunch of stuff. Uh, what I would definitely say from the good parts is that the Angular core team did their absolute best to provide the best possible experience when transitioning to these new tools. We have a bunch of schematics. We will talk about them. And you can run and get lots of uh, things automated for us. Uh, there are a bunch of resources. There are a bunch of approaches that uh, one can adopt. And of course, I know lots of developers are frustrated now because, you know, most of the Angular folks are, are stuck around Angular 12 to 14. Uh, and even the guys who have like Angular 15 or 16, they actually have the latest version, but are not using all the latest features because those features also require um, a lot of manual work and a lot of testing. So yeah, it's a it's a steep steep place to approach, but uh, with the tooling we have, and if you adopt the right approaches, it's it's definitely possible. So it's not that hard, but you still need to be careful. So yeah, we're gonna talk about that. <laughs> and let's talk about in which versions it becomes hard because. I recently upgraded many projects from 16 to 17, and that was pretty easy. But again, it was 16 from 17. It was just one version update. But when would it really be a problem if we're like on version 10, 12, 13? Yeah. Well, upgrading itself isn't usually the problem. Upgrading is the beginning 
the problems. Like uh, you can upgrade to version 17 right now if you are not too far behind. But if you upgrade to version 17, well, you will have all the stuff that has been improved under the hood, like better optimization. If you have SSR, like you will have better support for SSR and so on. But uh, you would still need to change a bunch of code if you want to adopt uh, the new approaches to writing code. So if you use... Well, one thing we need to address is that in Angular version 16, the Angular compatibility compiler, the NGCC, has been removed. So upgrading from 12 to 17 could be even like impossible if you are using dependencies that are not supporting IV. Well, you shouldn't. You shouldn't really use those libraries because if in version 16 and 17 they are not supporting IV and they are like such dependencies aren't properly maintained. So it would be best to avoid. But if your project is already married to such a dependency, yeah, you, you've got to have a real big problem upgrading to Angular 16 and beyond. But say you don't have that problem. Let's say it's okay. You can upgrade to Angular 17 from whatever version. There is a bunch of stuff going on. If you didn't have standalone components, you would want to have standalone components. And that itself is like a very huge migration. You migrate your component code, you migrate your configurations, you migrate like a bunch of stuff. And it entirely depends on how your project was built. So uh, then you would want, the, for example, the image directive. If you're using images, you would be like, oh, okay, sure, let's use the ng-optimized directive. But that also involves a bunch of stuff. And you need to configure something, you need to import the directive, you need to put the directive. By the way, uh, the image directive has been backported to version 13. So if you are on like... 12 you and you want it you can go just to 14 you don't need to upgrade to like uh, version 15 to get the image directive and then there is uh, the new control flow syntax well it is not stable yet i mean you could skip that for now but there are all the tools available to do the transition right now or even if you like if you do that in six months when it becomes stable eventually in version 18 this this discussion that we have now will still be relevant because maybe some syntax thing will change, but the overall stuff will be the same and the overall upgrade and migration process will be the same. So it's not a version problem. But of course, the newer version you have, the easier at least the initial steps will be. I mean, as you said, from 16 to 17, upgrade like should be painless, okay? That makes sense. So I'm just going to jump in and see if I can restate some of this. So um, as far as backward compatibility goes, you can upgrade it and it'll keep working, right? Your your website's not going to crash. It's not going to throw a bunch of ugly errors. It's not going to do anything you don't expect. What we're talking about is, hey, there's a bunch of great stuff in the newer versions that you probably want to take advantage of to make your development faster, to make your app run more smoothly, to you know to get better performance and things like that absolutely yeah yeah that's the case so so you talked a little bit about some of these things it's like you may want to upgrade like you said uh you may want standalone components so so what does that process look like because i i've i kind of dabble in angular and so i don't actually know what that process looks like right i may have written some standalone components at some point i may have written some 
uh, older components at some point, and I've I've never had to push from one to the other. Yeah, so uh, standalone, yeah, that's a good place to start because uh, it's uh, it's an older change. We got standalone in version fourteen, and in version right. fifteen, it is stable. So we had the a lot of time to try to upgrade. So the great thing about standalone is that fully interoperates with modules. So what what one can do is uh, sort of uh, do the migration iteratively, okay? Like incremental steps. You do one component, then you do another component. Right. You remove one ng module, then you remove another. Then at the end of the day, just remove the root module. You configure using the functional APIs, the new APIs, and then you are done. Of course, that's, that's a manual approach, okay? Which is reasonable, especially if you have like a huge project. Then, right. yeah, maybe you can change one thing, another thing, change the tests, and in the end of the day, be sure that nothing broke, okay? But yeah, that, that, that takes a lot of time. Uh, for a project that is, like, less risky, um, you can easily use the schematic that the Angular team provides. So they give you this schematic, which uh, goes, as far as I remember, it was, like, ng-generate um, at Angular slash standalone, something like that. Well, the exact command is irrelevant, but you have this command that you can run on your uh, project inside your, say, project root, and then it will scan for your files and find engine modules and find components and make components standalone. And the beautiful thing about the schematic is that it actually works in three steps. So you have to run it three times. Uh, First time, it will uh, mark your components as standalone. So what it will do, uh, it will go find all the component decorators and put standalone mm-hmm. true there. And uh, because the component is now standalone, it cannot be declared in an engine module, but it can be imported into an engine module. And then it will go to the engine module where it is declared and just remove the declaration and put it inside the import statement. Okay. Okay. And that way you uh, get the situation that, ah, sure, now this component is using, uh, it it imports stuff itself, so it will add the imports that this component is using from the engine module. And it will uh, turn it into standalone. So now you have a bunch of standalone components, but your application architecture is engine module based. Okay? Uh, The second time you run the command, it will actually go around and uh, update the imports for those components that are now standalone. So now they only fully import not the module, but they import like other standalone components from your project. Uh, and finally, you can run the command the third time, and will just because after these two commands, your engine modules are essentially obsolete. You don't really need them because everything is declared around uh, standalone. And then you can just run the command the third time and it will remove the engine modules that are now useless. Okay? And it will create the main TS file and the app config TS file that we have now with new Angular project, put the dependencies there and so on. Uh, and yeah, you can put a flag that will uh, start using the standalone APIs. For example, if you are using router module, it will remove it and put the provide router and so on. Uh, it's oh, wow. not ideal. It's not ideal because sometimes it will miss something, especially if you have like circular dependencies and so on. I will uh, mention about that also. Uh, a good thing, if you have a large project, you can actually run this command in a subdirectory. So instead of 
uh, instantly moving your entire app. You can, for example, if you have a module-based architecture, you can pick one feature module. I don't know, users module. Okay, let's convert this to standalone. Convert it, run the tests. Uh, I don't know, check it manually. If you think everything is good, you can move to another module and then so on and so on until you're left with just root module, which you can even remove just manually. Okay. Uh, and there are also modules that, for example, they use for root and they dynamically provide something and not, for example, not every third-party library that uses that structure has been fully migrated to standalone. So one awesome. option is to also use import providers from. That was actually really yeah. important for, for the migration of many of the projects that we had. So if you're using dynamic providers, um, I, I think that actually also works with regular modules, right, Armin? Like if you just oh, want yeah. to... Yeah, so if you just want to migrate, uh, like you don't want to really get rid of the ng modules right now but you want to at least migrate the bootstrap file uh to use the new standalone bootstrap and to use the uh the application config isolated from the rest you can do that by using this function called import providers from so this function is imported from angular core and it allows you to pass all the modules as arguments to it and then it's just going to provide them as you were already doing with your regular app module in the past. That's a, that's a really good catch. I, I actually kind of forgot about the import provider from function. Uh, engine models are not gone. They're not deprecated. There are no official plans on deprecating. I mean, maybe eventually. We don't know. But right now, it's not on the roadmap. So the Angular team is clear that engine models are here. If you want to use standalone no problem. Actually, inside Angular, there is a bunch of stuff that is still ng-module based. Uh, form controls, forms module, reactive forms module, they are still there. You have to import the modules to be able to use. Uh, by the way, I actually investigated. And uh, you know what's the reason behind that? Like all the other stuff is standalone now, right? You have ng-class, ng-switch, blah, blah, blah. All of that is standalone. But uh, the... Uh, uh, you know, the ng module, uh, sorry, the ng model, form control, and so on directives, they are not standalone. And the thing is that actually, uh, like when you put ng model, or you know, there is a directive called ng model, right? But actually, it's not just one directive, it's actually a family of directives because ng mod model for a radio button is completely different from an ng model for, uh, let's say, I don't know, select HTML element or a usual input. So actually, under the hood, there are multiple engine model directives. Uh, one matches for radio buttons, one matches for inputs, and so on. And uh, if you want to use them, you need to import the entire thing. So you are, so you are able to put like engine model on whatever uh, native HTML form element you want. That's why for now and for the foreseeable future, those engine modules will place there. I mean, I would bet that in the future, engine modules will be sort of marketed not as like uh, application backbone or a way to create architecture, but rather a way to group related components, maybe even standalone components, so that uh, if you know that they this, these things are always used in conjunction, okay, you can group them in a module and maybe import them uh, all together. I'm not sure about it. There's just speculation. 
but you know with the way this is going it is one possibility yeah um i think that that makes a ton of sense like doing the standalone migration first uh and you're right like the only reason why i haven't felt that much of a uh, pain to migrate was because i was already uh i had already migrated those things before so so you're right. And one thing that didn't work out super well to me, though, was uh, the new control flow syntax and running the migration on NX. Like it just, it wasn't so straightforward to run the migration uh, using NX because uh, I had to, like the regular ng command wouldn't work. Uh, so I would have to use it through NX and pass some other parameters to it. Uh, and then there was also like a, two particular components that weren't properly migrated. Like, yes, they were at first, but if I ran it again, it would uh, it would actually generate some issues because like I had stuff inside my ng switch. And I can't have things inside ng switch anymore. You can only have things inside ng inside switch cases and the default case, but you can't just have things lying around inside the, the switch block. So that was actually a problem that I had with the migration. But other than that, which was something that I was able to migrate manually, everything else was pretty straightforward. That's uh, that's actually an interesting point. I've never thought about it. Uh, the having some content other than cases. Uh, although I have tried out the, um, the schematic on a let's say usual project, not with NX. It worked wonderfully for me. Uh, actually, it uh, it worked only on the templates, which kind of makes sense uh, because you know. If you remove the imports, that might possibly break something. But uh, actually, someone on Twitter corrected me today that there is actually a flag that you can put, and the command will also just remove the imports for NGEs, NGSwitch, and so on. Um, what was interesting for me, like one important point, is that well, with the new syntax, uh, the track uh, modifier is required for uh, for loops, right? So with NG4, you could skip like the track by function. Well, you shouldn't, but most of the people skip that anyway. Uh, with the new syntax, it requires that you put a tracker, like in React, when it requires to put a key when we are mapping over uh, an array. And the same now is true for Angular, which is a good development. I, I welcome it. Uh, but uh, it's a bit tricky with the migration uh, because when, when you do the migration, obviously, lots of cases, you will not have a track by function. And what it will do, it will put, like, like if you have, let's say, ng4 led item of items, it will change it to four item of items and then track item. So essentially, uh, it's just a useless modifier because it only, it tracks the exact reference to the object, which could obviously change mm -hmm. without meaning a change that must result in a re-render, right? Uh, and that is okay in the sense that nothing will break. Actually, your app will continue working as usual. But you should probably jump on the opportunity and provide something more meaningful to the track modifier, like maybe ID or whatever you are using to differentiate between objects in, an, in a collection, right? Uh, yeah, that's, that, that's one point. 
And another point is that the switch uh, switch case syntax, now the switch case matching uh, happens on uh, strict equality, okay? Uh, actually, ng-switch uh, works with loose equality. I don't know why, I'm not sure. And I believe you could modify that with some injection token, but that's like really obscure knowledge uh, at this point. So if you change, there is a small possibility if your code relied on loose equality for matching cases, which again, it shouldn't have probably, but you have such a case, it's going to be, it probably will introduce a bug into your switch case. So I would suggest, I mean, uh, migrating if statements, the ng if directed. That's just a, a piece of cake. Like, no problem. Uh, but um, with switch and for loops, you should probably be a bit more careful. But in general, it's it's more of a mechanical thing. It's easier to do than a standalone migration, I think. A standalone involves a bunch of interconnected stuff. And, you know, for loop is a for loop. It's in one place. Uh, actually, I noticed that I... I tested it with different tricks to see how it would work, the migration. And actually, if you, for example, put an ng-if statement on an ng-container, so ng-container is not like an element itself, right? It's just a placeholder where you could put, like, for example, ng-if, right? Uh, it will actually just remove the ng-container. It will just wrap the elements inside, wrap in the if statement, and be done with it. And that, that's really cool, because with ng if you you always needed either a one current element that will host everything inside, or you were forced to use ng containers. Now you can just write an if statement, and the schematic does that. It will remove ng container and put the if in its stead. Yeah. So that that's really cool, I think. I agree. Like just having those automated migrations makes our life so much easier, and it also makes it so much easier to defend Angular because there's always a friend that is going to say, oh, you're using Angular. They released a new version. Ha, like you're going to have a bad time. And because the, in the very Not if they're doing React. Yeah. <laughs> With React server. Well, your friend did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So nowadays we can just say, yeah, man, like we don't really have that problem anymore. They're not going to believe us anyways because most of them don't even try it. But <laughs> but we know that we actually have a good excuse to, to tell them, hey, no, actually it's much easier to, to upgrade nowadays. Yeah. I would say uh, it's totally worth it. I mean, imagine how many new projects start with Angular, and you have already all of these awesome features. Oh, we're going to do signals next. How to migrate to signals, because there is no schematic for that. <laughs> that That is a very good point. And I, and I don't think we're going to have, right, just to, to make it clear to the audience, like it's not something that is being done and you just have to wait. Oh, I don't think it's something that is even like theoretically possible, because... Yeah. How would you figure out if something needs to be a signal or not? I mean, one approach would be to go through the template, uh, see what stuff is a signal, is a binding, and just like convert those properties to signals. Which I guess, I mean, it, it could be done, but it could be problematic too. Like, 
if it's a boolean property okay we can do that easily we could uh, go and say okay whenever we say let's say you have a loading property which is a boolean uh, now we want to turn it into signal well no problem we just instead of saying like loading equals true you could say loading equals signal true and whenever you assign something to the loading property, you say loading equals false, for example. Instead of that, you could just do loading dot set true. Okay, that's a simple case. But, okay, how about an array? So you could have an array of a signal, a signal of an array, I mean, that's a perfectly reasonable use case. And now you have a bunch of, let's say, array dot push statements. How, how do you go on about converting that? Uh, do you use the... I mean, that's a bunch of stuff that you need to consider. And I'm not really sure you could like deterministically uh, convert all of them. It's going to involve manual labor, okay? And uh, again, you don't probably, you don't need all of your properties to be signals. So it really depends. But there are manual approaches that you can adopt that would probably result in a pretty smooth transition. Because, again, signals, they're just, you know, reactive primitives. You can use them, you cannot use them, you can use both signals and, like, usual properties. So you can just do it, let's say, you know, I, I, I noticed that I used this word a lot last year, uh, incrementally. <laughs> uh, one amazing place to start, if you have behavior subjects in your Angular code, you know, you just don't ditch them and use a signal. Because, Essentially, behavior subject and the signal are the same thing at the end of the day. Uh, of course, uh, behavior subject, you, you could pipe and add operators to it. But in most cases, you are using something like map or tap. So either a side effect or you know, transformation into another uh, observable. So well, for the first one, you can use an effect. For side effects, which is also you just you can just take the same callback, put it into an effect statement, and be done with it. And for maps, you can use uh, you know computed properties. So conversion of a behavior subject to signal in ninety five percent of the cases is going to be very smooth. Okay, so yeah, you could just hunt for behavior subjects in your code and just turn them into signals. If you have ordinary subjects or observables, well, no problem. Wrap them in a two signal. Like use RxJS interop, convert them to signal. Now your templates are not using the async pipe. So it's an overall improvement. Uh, and again, you can go on about like the simple properties that are reactive. Again, if you have like a loading Boolean property, it's fairly easy to manually convert it to signal. Not a big deal at all. Will not break anything. Just keep in mind that, you know, you got to have problems with objects. So you can start with primitive properties like strings, booleans, so on. And then if in the final part, you can move on to modifying arrays, making them into uh, signals of arrays. So yeah, that, that's the approach that I would adopt because there, there is never going to be a schematic for me. I don't, I don't think so. Armin, uh, how do you feel about signals versus behavior subjects in contexts where... Uh, where it's not just a component. For example, I have some utilities that I reuse in many of my projects, and a lot of them rely heavily on RxJS to do some uh, to do some logic. For example, I have something that does um, 
I'm trying to remember the name that I gave to it. I think it's like threshold controller or something like that. It's a it's a utility that I created so that I could run a bunch of jobs in parallel, but also make sure that I could limit the amount that was running at the same time. So it's basically a queue, but it allows jobs to be parallelized up to a certain amount, right? Uh, so I built that and I used RxJS and behavior subjects to listen to the changes in how many jobs are active and how many jobs are completed, etc. So as you can see, it's not a very Angular-specific thing. It's, it's a piece of code that I can even reuse in a backend environment, uh, in an environment that, that has nothing to do with Angular whatsoever. But uh, I was wondering if for such scenarios, there would be something simpler than a behavior subject, but I also understand that I can't use a signal because I want it to work on other environments. So what I'm actually asking is, is there like a not Angular specific version of a signal that I can use in such cases? Uh, uh, well, you mentioned parallelizing tasks, so it's going to be asynchronous, right? Good point. So there is no <laughs> version of signals in existence right now that could do that. The whole shtick of the signals is that they're synchronous. they almost completely synchronous. So computed properties and proper signals, they are synchronous. And effects, they are asynchronous, kind of. Like, in reality, yeah, they are asynchronous, though they work in a different fashion that you would expect. So essentially, almost all of the stuff that revolves around signals is asynchronous. My go-to approach is to see if the logic that I'm trying to incorporate, like uh, when we say reactive, often people think that, oh, that, that's asynchronous. But that, that's not really the case. You could have reactive code that's synchronous. Reactive is essentially just notifying somewhere that something happened. But you can do that synchronously, right? You, you, will, you have an array of callbacks and you just call one of the callbacks. And now uh, all the consumers are notified, but there hasn't been an uh, async tick, right? So if I have something that is reactive, I would just use signals, reactive but not asynchronous. If I have something like a stream of events, then, uh, then I'm going to have asynchronicity, right? A async code, then I'm going to use RxJS because I cannot possibly use uh, signals for that because signals are synchronous. How am I, for example, how I'm going to check that there are, uh, let's say, this many parallel tasks going on if uh, the update to one task triggers all the, you know, computed properties and so on. That won't be really feasible and it should not because signals are reactive states and RxJS is now reserved for asynchronous events. So you have streams of events, not state, mm -hmm. and you have reactive state, not events. That's, that's, that's the whole let's say, upgrade for us. Uh, and actually, there is another, like, angular problem with that. Like, uh, what people will do, they would say, okay, let's use RxJS, for example, in services for all the stuff going on, like event, bus, whatever. And then we'll say, but, okay, in the component, I want to use the signal version of this. I want to derive some state from these events and use it as a signal in a component, which is completely valid use case. And what they will do, they will like call to signal in the service. Uh, 
Now you've got yourself a problem because Tusino immediately subscribes to the uh, observable and maybe that observable just waits to be subscribed. So it doesn't work. It's a cold observable. Now you subscribe to it. So it's now a hot observable. More so, even if the component where you are using it gets destroyed, well, bad luck. You called to signal in the service. And if the service is provided in the root injector, well, that it's going to leave, that subscription is going to leave until the end of the entire application. So what you need to do is either just use the to signal function in the, in the component, or if you want more like even more granular control, you probably should, uh, I don't know, add some method on your service. That, like that's a real approach that people are using now. You call it the connect method. And you call connect method whenever you need it in the component. Like you have something in the service, you say connect, and now all the signals are connected to the observable. Only after that, it will begin to work, and then it will be destroyed in engine destroy. You can add this logic inside uh, that specific uh, function. Okay, you cannot do async stuff with signals like bottom line. Yeah, that's a that's a very good point. You're right. My question entirely didn't make didn't make sense <laughs> after I realized. No, it that. did. It yeah. did because uh, I mean it's perfectly natural, especially if you when you when you talk about like your example was really good because we're talking about the set of things that are working asynchronously. So you have essentially a state. It's not even a question about uh, what events those other, let's say, tasks would uh, emit at some point. It's a question of how you can keep track of them and so on. You could do that part with signals, but the very moment you connect to the actual streams, you can no longer really use signals for that. That's the problem. You could use it for a state, if you have reactive state. But if you have a list of events, well, mm, bad luck. I mean, uh, you could derive, like today I did uh, a small thing for um, upcoming training of mine. So it's a, uh, it's a clock, okay? It's a clock that displays the current time. And I want to do that with a signal. So what I do, I use RxJS interval, map it to the current date, okay? Then use two signal. Now I have a signal of the current date, which constantly, every second it gets updated. But it's a state now. It's a date that changed depending on, I don't know, whatever. Doesn't matter. Maybe I'm getting the current date time via a uh, WebSocket from a server or whatever. For that reason, now I have a signal. Now I can just do a computed property. And now I have myself beautiful formatted time that I can display in the HTML. Uh, we should realize that the main point of signals outside of you know clean code and so on is to aid with change detection, is to be as granular as possible and as simple to adopt. Like, they could do it with RxJS too, because RxJS also notifies about changes, right? Behavior subject, as we mentioned. But they wanted something really simple that you can just drop, say, signal of this, okay, set value, read value, okay, I'm done. Uh, because under the hood, it does call, I don't know, mark component dirty, uh, you might have seen uh, in Angular 17, they like really silently introduced this thing called local change detection. So if you're not familiar with signals, uh, if your component and all its ancestors are uh, on push, 
which is often the case with lots of projects, like people like to mark their components on push. Now, in that component, if a signal is changed, only that component is change detected. No, 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 no parents are marked as dirty if they are also on push, which is actually a very, very significant development because up until this point, your best case optimization was to run change detection only on components ancestor instead of all of the components in the project. Now you can just say, okay, change detect this one component and you don't have to do much. Just use signals and put change detection strategy on push. Yeah. That's the main reason for signals. Signals are magic. They're really cool. And they are, they are. They still have problems that they need to work out, but, uh, well, the API is stable, so we're okay using them. Outside, other than effect, effect is not stable yet. Okay. But, you know, you shouldn't probably use effects that much anyway. Like 99% of scenarios, you don't really need an effect. Yep. Okay. Um, do you think there's any other major thing that we should cover on the subject of today's episode in terms of migrations to the latest? To the yeah, latest version one last thing. Yeah, one last thing. Uh, that is, of course, SSR. Uh, now, well, uh, I think we did the last episode on SSR in general. And uh, we mentioned that SSR now its own package inside Angular, so you don't have like uh, Angular universe or separate. Now you just have Angular slash SSR. Uh, and the cool thing about it is it also supports the, the ng add schematic. So if you have a project that is not SSR, uh, you can add SSR using the ng add Angular slash SSR command. Uh, and it will do a bunch of stuff. It will generate a server TS file, a, uh, if I remember correctly, a main.server.ts file. Those are actually different. You have one server TS file, which has the, like a Node.js server config, and you have a main server TS file that is an Angular config for the server. And it will add all, all the stuff that you need. It will add client-side hydration and so on and so on. Uh, so in general, it's a simple schematic. So it's, uh, it's probably the easiest outside of the things that we're talking about because SSR itself, the schematic of migration uh, is pretty straightforward. You don't change the actual code. I will talk about it now. Uh, you don't need to change the actual code in 99% of scenarios. Uh, so yeah, it makes sense to run a schematic. Then you're going to have some bugs and those bugs you will have uh, only in the scenario where you are actually updating the DOM using like the browser APIs. If you are doing something like document uh, dot, um, let's say, append child or whatever. For those cases, you should uh, use the renderer. And for the cases where you really need to access the DOM, you should use the new functions that we have, the after render and after next render, which ensure that some functionality runs only on the client side. But again, uh, on top of my head, you usually discover those bugs like immediately because you open a page and it cannot render because... Uh, you only have those problems if you are calling those functions in lifecycle hooks. Like if you have a method that uh, does some DOM manipulation when the user clicks something, well, the user clicking something is already in the browser. You don't have a problem there. You don't need to wrap it in after next render or whatever. Uh, you only have problem when you do DOM manipulation in the constructor or saying enjoy need, enjoy after view need, and so on. Because those lifecycle methods will be called on the server. Okay, while well, server is rendering there, it will call ng on it, 
Scott engine need maybe fetching data or whatever to you know, render the component. Uh, in those cases, it means that if you have a problem like that, you open that page, you immediately see an error. You see that, oh, what is document? What is window? I don't know. And it's an immediate giveaway that, ah, okay, that's the problem. And the solution is also easy. Just take that code, put it inside after an render, it will work. In Again, 99% of scenarios, maybe you have something super complex, which could be. In that case, you probably will put more legwork. But in general, I think the transition to SSR, if you want to do it, uh, on a fairly large project should take a day or two in general. Because again, you're not changing the actual code. Your component codes, your templates, they will stay the same. You will just change very granular pieces which might not even exist in your project if you're just doing, you know, more bigger concern for libraries, that is, but not for, you know, enterprise application. So, so. Cool. That was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I agree. I agree. And, and for, as you mentioned, for everyone that wants to dive, to dive deeper into SSR, the last episode was just about that. So yeah. you can check it out, whatever you're, um, you're listening to the show. And we go way deeper on SSR in the last episode. So you're going to really know if you should do it, how you should do it, the caveats, pros, cons, etc. So all that that good stuff is there. Okay. Uh, and yeah, I think we can we can start wrapping up from here. Um, yeah. Let's let's do our promos first, and actually let's start with Armin because I heard he has something interesting. Oh, I have a long promotion. <laughs> so, for a long time, I guess the last six, seven months, I've been actually writing a book about Angular. Uh, I'm writing a book for the mining publication. Maybe some of our listeners know uh -huh. about uh, that publication. It's fairly, fairly popular. Lots of amazing books they have out there. Uh, the book is called Modern Angular. And so it's exactly what we have been discussing in the last, I guess, 10 to 15 episodes, all the stuff that is new and shining in the latest Angular versions. So standalone components, inject function, signals, 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 RHS interoperability, uh, all the small stuff, uh, SSR, unit testing, uh, template syntax, deferred loading, everything. Everything that you know about Angular, starting from versions, I would say, 14. Everything that is new is in this book now. That's how I know all this migration schematics. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when you are writing a chapter about, you know, say, standalone, you got to tell people how to migrate. Uh, the book is structured in that way. So in the book, we are uh, sort of coding along uh, an enterprise project with real-life uh, problems to solve and we are using all the latest features and each chapter outside of just developing that part of the application also has a how to migrate section so for example uh, for standalone components we build some standalone components in the project we connect them, we provide routing we provide lazy loading and so on and so on uh, and uh, in the final part, we have, oh, okay, now we have a pre-existing project. How do we approach this? What are the caveats? What are the problems I might encounter? Uh, how the schematic works? What if I want to do it manually? 
And essentially, this works for almost all chapters because all the new stuff we're going to talk about how to migrate to it. So each chapter has its own subsections on migration. The book is now in early access. Uh, the first three chapters are now available. Actually, it uh, happened today, yeah, 29th of November. Uh, actually, you forgot about it and they just, just got an email that, oh, you know, your book is live. <laughs> Uh, so the first three chapters, the covering standalone component and the inject function, pretty interesting functionality, you know. Uh, those chapters are live. Uh, I think I put the link to the book in the chat, yeah. So let's have it in the episode description. Uh, would love to see any feedback, would love to see comments. There is a live book forum. So if you have any questions, if any, any comments, uh, I will be active on the forum too, trying to address all the stuff coming from the leaders. Uh, hopefully anyone who wants to try the book out, I hope you enjoy it. I've put a lot of work and a lot of love in it. It was a really amazing experience. So yeah, looking forward for the other chapters to come around. Awesome. Yeah, congrats, man. I know you've been working on it for a very long time. I'm actually going to send this here. Uh, would it be okay to send it in the comment section so that everyone that is that may be watching us from streaming on YouTube, LinkedIn, etc. can oh, see absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. All right. The link is there. Um, and that also makes sure that we are not going to forget to... Uh, included in in the show notes because now it's uh, already in the comments uh actually armin i think there's <laughs> i actually sent the the a broken link i'm so sorry let me let me send another uh, one yeah. with with the correct one yeah i was gonna just yeah i included a uh an opens yeah. word at the end and i broke the link sorry okay now it's correct all right, again, huge congrats to you. And really for all of you that are looking to improve your best practices in Angular and just update yourself on the framework, I highly encourage checking out Armin's book. And just the fact that you can read the first chapters for free for now, like this is such a big opportunity for people to, to yeah. experiment before buying it. So like... Don't waste this opportunity. This is kind of having an open house. So yeah, definitely, definitely check it out because this is going to be one of the best chances for you to try out the content before you make a decision to buy it or not. All right. Yep. Um, Chuck, how about you? So I am right on the verge of launching uh, a couple of memberships on Top End Devs. And I think the one that is most relevant to this. So I'm doing a React membership, but I'm also doing a JavaScript membership. Um, and we're going to have weekly or most, well, it'll be at least three times a month. We'll have a meetup and we'll just, we'll be on a Zoom call. And the calls are going to kind of rotate between three different things. One of them is going to be a Q&A, right? So I'll have some of my expert friends show up or I'll just answer your questions myself or however that works. Um we're also going to have an expert show up uh, for one of the calls every month and talk to us about some aspect of JavaScript or web development or something like that, right? Um, incidentally, the other membership I'm launching is the Ruby membership. And so the you know, same idea, right? 
the last the last one's going to be kind of a get to know you uh, kind of meetup, and then I'm also going to be having once a month uh, more of a career soft skills meetup that that is part of all the memberships, and so uh, that's what I'm launching. It'll also include a screencast series. I plan on putting out a couple of videos every week uh, demonstrating some aspect of JavaScript or web or tooling or something. So um, if you go to javascriptgeniuses.com, you'll be able to sign up. Um, I just bought the domain the other day and I'm getting it all pointed to the right place. You can uh, come see what it's about and come sign up. So uh, yeah, if you're interested in participating in that, then definitely check it out. Um, you can come see all the meetups and when they're scheduled and all that stuff. You can just go to topendevs.com slash calendar and you can see all that stuff too. But yeah, that's that's the big launch. That's the big thing that I'm working on right now. Nice, nice. Huge that sounds really interesting. Everywhere. Yeah. Well, I'm still the same. So my promo is still going to be uh, if you're interested in staff augmentation or software outsourcing Unvoid, U-N-V-O-I-D dot com offers performance-based software development services. So the clients only pay when tests are delivered and approved, which currently is the safest way for you to outsource or or augment your staff. Also, uh, they work on U.S. time zones. So they are a nearshore software development Mm, agencies. They're not um, off. It's outshore or offshore. I think it's offshore. Offshore. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the time zones are not crazy. So if you end up choosing to work with Envoy, you're going to know for sure that you and the engineers are going to be available at the same time, which is really important for for most companies looking to collaborate. Uh, And yeah, I think this is all for today. Uh, I don't have anything else to contribute. I think this was very in-depth. And yeah, again, Armin, Chuck, thank you so much for joining. It's always good to to have more people on the show. Yeah, Max out, everybody. Uh, Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. And I'll see you in the next one.